We're continuing this morning in our seminar from the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm excited to be able to preach both this week and next as Pastor Steve is out of town this week on his week of study leave. We'll be looking at a number of selected texts this morning to try to discover some of the themes of the book, kind of looking at Ecclesiastes as, uh, as a whole, kind of topically. And so far we've learned, of course, these last few weeks that Ecclesiastes is a difficult book, that part of the way it teaches is it provides as many questions as answers, that it provides us with these sort of proverbs and pithy statements that even as we read them almost appear contradictory on the surface of them, that it provides challenges for the reader to consider the reality of the world that God has made and that God has placed us in. So, Uh, There's a sermon outline on pages 8 in the bulletin, starting on page 8 in the bulletin, which includes the passages that we'll read this morning, uh, which I think are are my attempt to summarize some of the teaching of the book as a whole. I want to explain a couple different interpretive perspectives on the book of Ecclesiastes that influence our study of it as a whole. And we can see it through a number of different sort of perspectives and lenses. One is, um, as we've seen... Uh, and I think this is, you know, this is a very popular approach and a way to, to read the book of Ecclesiastes, is that it's kind of written from the perspective of pre-evangelism. That it's written is from this perspective of preparation for the unbeliever, the agnostic, the nihilist, the materialist, the secularist, to be able to hear the gospel message. As the professor looks out at the world, he sees that meaning and purpose cannot be found in a world without God. He sees that pleasure and fun and work and even wisdom are all ultimately unsatisfying in a world without God, right? And so he encourages the unbeliever, he challenges them to see the ultimate logical consequences of their worldview. And Francis Schaeffer, you know, famously used to do this. He would, he would challenge people to, he would try to take the roof off, is what he called it, of their beliefs and say, this is the logical consequence of your worldview. So we can see Ecclesiastes in this kind of way, that it has a function that's kind of a a negative function, actually, to show us and to show the unbeliever what the world would be like really without God, that there isn't meaning, that there isn't purpose, that fun and all of that is is ultimately unsatisfying. And it's one way to see it, and I think that's kind of the perspective that that we've been getting. As uh, in the book. Another way that I want us to explore this morning is to consider the question of what kind of wisdom is the professor trying to instill in us? Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature of our Bibles, uh, with the, along with Job and the Proverbs and some of the Psalms and the Song of Solomon. Those are, the, those are what we call the wisdom literature. And I think Ecclesiastes is given to us so that we would grow in wisdom for the believer. For us, the covenant community, to grow and understand something true about the world. So what is this message of Ecclesiastes for the believer and for us in the church? What's the positive, the sort of other side of the coin, the positive message for us? What kind of wisdom do we glean from it? Well, what I'm putting before us today is the kind of wisdom that the professor is describing is what I'm calling the wisdom of godly agnosticism. I'll define that, of course, as we go along this morning. But we remember what wisdom is. 
from a biblical perspective. Biblical wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. It's that ability to be able to see a situation and respond appropriately. It's sort of a sanctified common sense, right? It's not, it's, it goes beyond knowledge to say the right application of knowledge in this particular setting is what's wise. So we'll look at these uh, passages. There are four different passages that are there in your, in your uh, sermon outline from different places in the book. And, um, and we'll see what the professor would teach us about wisdom. So please read with, read me, read with me or hear, hear God's word. From chapter 3, I have seen the burden that God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. From chapter 7, we read, When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? In chapter 8, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. And from chapter 11, As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. As far as the reading of God's word, pray with me, please. Father, now as we come to your word, we need your help to understand it. We need to grow in wisdom. We need to understand this difficult book that you've given us. It's part of your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to get the message that you have for us this morning. Be with me as I, as I speak, that your words would be mine. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with three completely unrelated stories. First is the story of a, uh, one of the students that we met when I was in Hungary. I was working with a student group with Campus Crusade back in the late 90s. And one of the first students that we met was a girl named Nikki. And uh, Nikki was an English major, which was really important for us because we needed help in translating Hungarian. And Nikki really was a girl who wanted to grow as a believer. She became one of the key students among our small group of students. And we were going one year to a conference. This was early when we were there, one of the first semesters. And uh, we were taking the train. We were all at the train station waiting. And Nikki had decided to come to this conference with us. We're waiting. We're waiting. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. We get on board the train. We're still waiting. And right as the train starts to leave, we see Nikki run into the train station. And she missed the train. Wasn't able to go to this conference where she could have connected with other Hungarian students, where she would have gotten uh, good biblical teaching, where she would have been able to grow as a Christian. 
And as the train was taking off, one of my teammates was saying, why? Why did that happen? Why did God make that happen? The issue was that the bus that she was waiting for to take her to the train station was late for no reason, and she missed the bus. Story number two. I was talking with some friends after Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when those events were in the news. I was having a conversation with a seminary friend and with another man who was in our church in St. Louis. And they were, as they were talking about it, one of them said, well, God, God isn't mocked. You know, God's word is very serious about sin. And New Orleans, as a city, as a community, is suffering because of the way that they've turned away from God, because it's such a hedonistic and godless kind of place. Perhaps some of us heard similar things after 2000, uh, September 11 in 2001. You know, that this is a judgment, a symbolic judgment on our country, these horrible things that have happened to us. Why did God allow this kind of suffering? Was this some particular kind of judgment? third story is about a friend of mine who used to be a missionary in Afghanistan. He was there for a number of years. We had interesting conversations about the fact that he was doing his work as a missionary and living in a place where security was very important, um, where the prospect of death was in view, if people would have found out that he was a believer in some circumstances. It's estimated that there are between six and 7,000 believers among the 30 million people of Afghanistan. To put that in perspective, that's less than the adult communicant membership of our presbytery. So of the 30 churches in the Annapolis-Baltimore region, there are, statistically speaking, more adult believers and members of those churches than among the 30 million people in the country of Afghanistan. These three stories illustrate for me situations that cause us to wonder. And we can't really answer in terms of a sovereign God who rules over all things. Why does God cause a random bus to be late such that our friend loses opportunity for Christian fellowship and discipleship? Why does God cause a destructive flood that disproportionately affects the poorest of the poor in the city of New Orleans? Is it because of the wickedness of the people there? Why does God cause one place to have a clear gospel witness and array of theological resources, while another place in great need with vastly more people has so few believers that are so persecuted? These are the kinds of situations that our professor is considering in a way. Right? In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. I want to take a look at the idea of meaninglessness in a bit. But what we get from this verse and from the whole book is that our professor is on a quest to learn, to understand, and to explore. 
And I think we can summarize the book of Ecclesiastes as the struggle. Ecclesiastes is recording the struggle of a thinking man to square his faith with his experiences in life. The struggle of a thinking man to square his faith with his experiences and his observations about life. Well, how does he seek to find wisdom? What we're going to do for the next couple of minutes is look at some of the key words in Ecclesiastes to see the method that our professor is using to seek to find wisdom. First, he looks, he sees, he observes the world around him. The verb to see is found more than 40 times in the book. A professor has his eyes wide open. He describes what's fruitful and what's vain and what's incomprehensible. He is responding to an invitation from God to explore the world, to discover it, to observe it, to learn from it, to look and see what happens in this world, what it's about, what it's like. The second key idea in the book is found in two different Hebrew words. One means advantage, the other is gain. So by his observations, our professor wants to see what's gained. He wants to see what's profitable. He wants to see how life is lived to an advantage or benefit. Sometimes wisdom leads to gain. Sometimes work isn't profitable if it all goes to someone else after you die, right? These are the themes that are coming out as the professor looks at the book. How do I gain an advantage? What's profitable? Third is, of course, this idea of meaninglessness, according to our NIV English Bibles. I prefer, actually, the older King James Version word, vanity, as a better expression of the Hebrew idea. The the Hebrew word literally is vapor, like mist. And it's used figuratively in the Old Testament to describe the kind of bewilderment or futility of seeking to grasp that which cannot be grasped. It's chasing after the wind. So I don't think he means meaningless in the sense of not worth living, But I think the idea is more closely of something unsubstantial, something ephemeral, something that that there's an impossibility, there's a fruitlessness of seeking to make sense of it. Brings us to our last idea, our last key word in our professor's quest to gain wisdom, and that's to find out. The idea of this word is to seek to find out through research and experimentation. And so many times he describes this process of seeking to find out, to draw conclusions from his observations about the world. And so all of the ideas are kind of coming together right here, right? He's observing, he's looking, he's seeing, and he's looking to see what's gained and lost, what's advantage and disadvantage. And he's seeing that there's a lot of meaninglessness, that there's fleeting, that there's vanity. And so he he finds out that it can't be grasped. Our key word here of finding out occurs more than 15 times, and it's often answered in the negative, in the passages that we already read this morning. God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom, they cannot find out. They can't conclude what God has done from the beginning to the end. In 723, all this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but it was beyond me. 
Whatever wisdom may be, it's far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Who can find it out? Who can conclude correctly? Then in uh, chapter 8, no one can comprehend, no one can find out what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, to find it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend, he cannot really find it out. This may seem like a bleak conclusion to us, may seem like great pessimism, but it describes the reality of this life in this sense, doesn't it? Life doesn't interpret itself objectively for us. Life doesn't give us the key to making sense of it. And that doesn't mean that it's meaningless in the sense that it's without meaning or without purpose. But it does mean that we can't see the whole. We can't grasp it. We can't hold it. We can't explain it. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's chasing after the wind. And this isn't the cry of the atheist and the nihilist, right? This is the cry of the king of Israel. This is the cry of the covenant people of God. The sovereign God holds the key to everything. And this isn't a shocker. He's not giving it to you. The question of why hangs over our days and our decades of life on this planet. Philip Yancey, you know, a popular author, probably many of you have read some of his books. He wrote, Where's God When It Hurts? He wrote, Disappointment with God. He recently wrote another Christian bestseller, The Question That Never Goes Away. He's talking, of course, about the question of why. We can't shake the why question. Even though we're asking God, we're not like the atheist musing about the purposelessness of a random universe. We're trying to square our faith with the facts and experiences of life. And we can't answer that question. And in the face of an unanswerable question, and in the face of a universe that doesn't always make sense, and before the face of the God who is there, what is the Christian to do? What is the advice of our professor who invites us to learn of wisdom? What kind of wisdom do we need? We'll look at one type this morning. We'll look at another nuance of wisdom next week. But this week, I want us to consider what I call the wisdom of godly agnosticism. The term, of course, needs some explanation. Agnosticism is the idea of not knowing. The Greek word, the Greek verb to know is gnosko. The opposite is agnosko, to not know, agnosko the word from which we get agnostic, agnosticism. In our day, an agnostic is a person who is committed to the idea that humans cannot, do do not know, and actually cannot know what is true when it comes to religion and the deep philosophical questions that religions seek to answer, right? An agnostic is someone who says that you cannot know. An atheist is someone who says, I know, I know there's no God, right? An agnostic is someone who says, You can't know. You can't know, Christians, you Muslims, you can't know. You atheists, you can't know. No one can know. We're all, we're agnostic. We can't know. 
I'm using the term with a twist. Godly agnosticism is this idea that our professor has brought to us and has plopped into our laps. Based on observation, based on experimentation, based on the use of wisdom, based on all the use of all the tools of the human mind, in the end, people of God must admit with our professor that we cannot really know the big picture of what God is up to and how the events of our lives fit into that big picture. Apart from the revelation of God that we find in Scripture, we have no ability to see objectively and clearly the big picture of all that God is doing. Now, I don't want to overstate it. We see a small part of the picture oftentimes. We can sometimes see in hindsight why God might have done one thing over another or directed us down one path as opposed to a different one. Sometimes there are historical reasons or patterns that would suggest why certain things happen as opposed to other things happening. And clearly in Scripture, we find examples of God revealing part of his purpose to his people. Joseph can say with confidence, Now I understand at the end of my life, I understand why my brothers sold me into slavery and why I had to end up on this horrible path of ups and downs and all of this. God did it to preserve his people who otherwise would have perished in the famine. So near the end of his life, in hindsight, Joseph can say confidently, brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And I can see that. I can see that much of the picture. Paul could say that the reason why, part of the reason why he was in prison was so that some of the prison guards would become followers of Christ, snatched from the wrath of God because of his faithful witness to them. Paul can see that much of the picture. So there are things that we can know and that we can observe, that we can believe to be true with confidence, But our professor is showing that part of wisdom is truly believing and seeing the implications of this idea that we don't have the key that explains all of life and opens the doors of every mystery to us. As uh, chapter 11, verse 5 tells us, As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. I think in many ways this is the key thought of Ecclesiastes. When it comes right down to it, God is there. God is the judge. Life is meant to be lived in God's world. But there is much that happens in this life that is perplexing, that is vexing, that is fleeting, that is vain, and that God's people are called to learn that there's much wisdom in embracing the fact this fact, and living within this reality. That, I think, is one of the key thoughts of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I've tried to summarize a bit the teaching of the book this morning. Well, perhaps this has struck you as this is a bit obvious. Maybe a bit depressing, maybe a bit discouraging, but let's break it down and let's see what this, the application of this wisdom really means for us what it means in our daily lives. So here are some perspectives for us to consider. First, 
We recognize, as Pastor Steve mentioned a couple weeks ago, that this kind of wisdom, this kind of godly agnosticism, is the counterpoint. It's the flip side of the coin from the Proverbs. The Proverbs have this kind of consequence orientation, right? They, they see the world in terms of consequences. The, rid, the, the, the wise plow and reap in the right time and thus produce a harvest. The poor sleeps in, is lazy, and thus produces starvation, right? There's this kind of consequence orientation of the Proverbs. If this, then this. This is wisdom, right? This is often the way it works in God's world, certainly. Proverbs is part of a wisdom literature. But Ecclesiastes and Job also are telling us that life is more complex than that. The consequences aren't the whole story. And that we need to hold both kinds of wisdom and that we hold them in tension because life isn't formulaic. The Proverbs aren't promises and guarantees. As though we could read them and claim that if we work hard and that if we teach our kids diligently and that if we speak few words, we will necessarily have a successful life and obedient and godly children and a good reputation in our schools and our work and everything else, right? That pro- you could read the Proverbs that way, but they're not meant to be read that way. What they're meant to do is give you the wisdom that there are consequences in God's world. Ecclesiastes is also giving you a different nuance of wisdom, the flip side of the coin, where we can say, yes, th- that's generally true, but we can also think of counterexamples, that Jesus, who of course was perfect, was slandered, didn't have a good reputation among many of the people, that he was mistreated, and he promised us that we will be too as we follow him. Right? So, the concept, so life isn't as simple as a simple, straight, formulaic consequence orientation, right? That's the first thing we recognize. The second thing we recognize is that the wisdom of godly agnosticism warns us not to claim to know more than we actually do. And this works out, I think, a lot of times in our relationships. As we encounter another believer who's struggling or who's grieving or who's seeking our advice, we have the power to be an encouragement. We have the power to point them to the gospel and the truth of the promises that God gives us. We also have the power to discourage and hurt them if we think we know more than we actually do, and if we draw unfair or untrue conclusions about their life and the reason why things are happening to them. Right? We mock Job's friends, but we know we can be like them. Job's friends weren't all wrong. They just overestimated what they thought they knew. And they drew wrong conclusions about that and the particular application of it in Job's life. And then they gave him advice that, that discouraged and tore him down and caused hurt rather than healing. I think we can do that as well in the church. If we think we know more than we do, and then we draw wrong conclusions, then we think that the reason why someone is suffering is because of this or that, which may not be the truth or the case at all. Third, I think we need to take comfort in our limits to understand God and his ways in the world. We live in a world of information and knowledge, and our fingertips is more than the ancients ever knew. 
Yet true wisdom and discernment are things that the culture and even the church seem to be in desperate need of. We have more knowledge, but we don't have more wisdom. Part of wisdom is knowing that we don't know what we don't know, and we're trusting God with the rest. It's wisdom to let God be God and to take comfort that you are the creature, not the creator. He's not asking you to bear the weight of the world or to solve all of the world's problems or even all of the problems of your friends or your children or your spouse, right? God's asking you to trust him and to seek to learn his ways and to respond with obedience to the call that he's placed on your life and to do that in the context of the church community. We need to take comfort in our limits and what we know and what we don't know. Fourth, yet, at the same time, don't give up your search for wisdom. Our professor drew the wise conclusion that he didn't have the key to life, but that doesn't mean that he just gave up and ignored life's deep questions. God has given us an amazing world to explore. God promises to give us wisdom and knowledge and insight to his people. He calls us to use our minds and our hearts and our hands to grow and to love others and to do good to all in the name of Christ. So, embrace this godly agnosticism, yet continue to learn and to grow and to love him and to love others more deeply each day. Finally, I think we might be given to despair if Ecclesiastes were the only book in our Bibles. If this kind of agnosticism was the only wisdom that God gives us and there were no other clues about why God does what he does, we might be a confused and anxious people. But on the contrary, God has given us a, tr- a tremendous number of precious promises which give us reason to trust him even when life doesn't make sense and even when we can't piece together the reasons why things happen for good or for bad. I'm reminded of the line from the famous hymn, you know, How Firm a Foundation, where the, the hymn writer wrote, What more can he say than to you he has said? to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. I want us to think for a minute, what all has God said to you about his trustworthiness? God has said to you that he's in control of the whole universe. God has said to you that he's loving towards all that he's made, that the extent of his love for his people was to sacrifice his only son to redeem all who believe to place the punishment and wrath upon his son that we deserved. God has said to us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. God has said to us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? As Romans 8 reminds us, God has said to us that we're his children that he's our father, that he cares for us more than all the birds and flowers and creation that he so amazingly upholds every day and every hour and every minute. God has made amazing promises for us to spend a lifetime reflecting upon in the gospel. And part of the God-given role of the church is to remind one another of those great promises that God has given his people. So, 
right? Particularly when life is hard, but even at all times. We're drawn back to these promises because we believe. And we have nowhere else to go and no one else to turn to. God has given us reason to trust Him, even when we can't understand, and even when the why question is causing us pain and running in circles through our minds. The events of our lives go according to and are the expression of the will of Him who gave up His Son for us. The events of our lives go according to His will, and are the expression of the will of him who gave up his son for us. What more can he say than to you he has said? God is trustworthy and true, but his ways aren't our ways. And what do we do when a completely trustworthy person does something that we can't understand? We continue to trust. And we ask him not just for answers, which he may or may not give, but we ask him for the grace to continue to trust and to trust more fully in his character and his kindness and his goodness. God, we have such a God who loves his people. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we do when a trustworthy person does something we can't understand? We have to continue to trust. I'm, rem- I'm reminded, as I was thinking about that, of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember the scene when Lucy first stumbles into the wardrobe, has her first experience in the world of Narnia. She comes back. She's telling her story to Edmund and, Luce- and Susan and-, and Peter, and of course they don't believe her. And so they're thinking that she's gone crazy, that she's lying. Remember, they run into the professor, the, you know, the guy who owns the house who they've never met. And they start telling him about Lucy and how she's had this experience in this wardrobe, and she must be lying, and she must have gone mad. And what does the professor say? He doesn't, he doesn't talk about Narnia. He talks about Lucy. Is Lucy prone to lying? Is Lucy prone to making up crazy stories? Is that in her character? Is that likely? And of course, the kids are all, no. And so the professor turns them to say, well, wait a minute, what is more likely? Is it more likely that Lucy is lying and making up this big story when she never does that? Or is it more likely that there is this world that you can't exactly see and that you haven't experienced yet, but that she's telling you true things about I think that's the picture of a God who is trustworthy and true, of a God who knows the end from the beginning, and of a God who has said to us that he loves us and that he's committed to our good. His character is impeccable, his promises are ironclad, and our struggles are real to square our faith with our experience. But he's trustworthy and true, and we won't regret placing our hope in him. And wisdom isn't to know why. Wisdom is to see that much of what we see is a mystery and an enigma to us.
But the God is wise. And the God knows what he's doing. And in the big picture of history and the universe and in the small details of all of our lives. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. This is God's word held out to his people this morning. It's our encouragement to continue to trust when life even doesn't make sense. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we have known of your character. That you are one who does not make mistakes. That you are one who is not given to error. That it's impossible for you. That you are one who it's impossible for you to break your promises. And we thank you for that truth this morning. We thank you that we can trust when things are good, when things are hard, that we can trust in a world that we don't understand, that we can live a life of faith that you've given, that you've planted in our hearts. Help it to grow. Help our faith to grow. Help us to be more and more like you and to trust you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.